today, verses 20 through 34. Remember we ended in verse 19 where it said the whole world has gone after Jesus. Now they were speaking sarcastically. They weren't speaking as accurately as they knew. A question for you. Are you in that phrase? The whole world has gone after Jesus, they say. Are you one of the world that has gone after Jesus? Do you know Jesus? I mean really know Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Really love him? Are you a follower of Jesus? Like really following Jesus? Are you submitting your life to Jesus? Are you repping the king like we talked about last week? Really living for Jesus? That's a good question to ask as we talk about the hour. Now, I want you to recognize something. When Jesus said, the hour has come in verse 23, I want you to know if you're a good reader, and it's hard to do this because we've been preaching this gospel of John now for over a year. But if you read this in one sitting, which is a good thing to do. If you haven't done that for a while, you should sit down and read the gospel of John in one shot. Because what you, would re, what you would find is that Jesus has been talking about the hour. But on numerous occasions, beginning with John chapter 2, when he performed uh, uh, a miracle, his first miracle, by turning the water into wine, he turned to his mother and he said, my hour has not yet come. Look these up. I'll make it easy on you. You could either take the challenge of reading the entire gospel of John in one sitting, which I challenge you to do, or you could write these down and look them up later. Chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 20. And you will find in all of those places in the gospel of John, Jesus says the hour has not yet come. Now these Greeks come wanting to see Jesus, wanting to talk to Jesus, and Jesus says the hour has come. The not yet is over. The now has come. I want to give you some observations about the hour. We'll make some observations about the hour, and then I will share with you the death of Jesus achieves four incredible things, and so we'll talk about those four incredible things, and then we'll end with some application. But first, some observations about the hour. We begin with these Greeks coming to talk to Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is in a fight with his own people. He's, his, his greatest enemies were the, the leaders of the, the religious leaders, the establishment. They're the ones that are beefing with him the most. They're after him. We know over and over again, John's been telling us how they're trying to kill Jesus. And so these Greeks are at the feast. That's not even, that's not even their feast. That's a Jewish feast. These Greeks are here. Why? Why might they be there? 
Well, we could speculate a little bit here. And I think it's reasonable. The Greek gods, they are perhaps struggling with. They hear of this Jesus who seems to be different than the gods of the Greeks. And when I talk about the the Greek gods, I'm talking about Greek mythology. And if you don't know Greek mythology, you should read it a little bit because it will help you to understand your Bible. I, I actually don't know Greek mythology that well, but my wife does. So I said, tell me, what are the problems with the Greek gods? And she said, oh. The Greek gods were really, really bad. These are lustful beings. They seduced mortal. They tricked people. They were constantly committing incest. They shape-shifted, Amy was telling me. So they, they would turn into different people and then show up in a home of a woman that they found attractive and they would begin to look like her husband. They were shape-shifters. Zeus was a serial rapist. He imposed himself upon goddesses and mortals of his choosing. Woo! I didn't come for this, Kenny. (laughs) Augustine said this, If imitation of the gods is what leads to virtuous character, then any rational person would have to conclude that you could never attain virtue imitating these gods who are filled with bloodthirst, lust, and depravity. So these Greeks start going... These gods, are, these gods are messed up. And I'm hearing about Jesus, and he doesn't seem like them. We want to see him. We want to talk to him. Perhaps you can relate. Have you ever looked around you and looked at everyone, your neighbors and your coworkers, and felt a dissatisfaction in life and thought that the people that I hear on TV... The people that I listen to, the podcast, the people that I work with, they don't have the answers. Do you ever look around you and and look at your own life and people around you and say, there's got to be more to life than this? I'm so dissatisfied. If Maybe you've said, if I'm being honest, everything that, the, everything that people kind of tell me, every, the messaging of the world tells me is going to satisfy me, if I'm being honest, I'm really not that satisfied. I feel so empty. I feel so hollow. Even Christians can feel this way. Have you ever, as a Christian, run after things? You just you run after it and you hope that it'll make you feel a certain way. You spend a whole weekend or a whole week or a whole month or a whole six months. You, you try to find some satisfaction. And you, you, you just determine, I, I feel so empty inside. This isn't working. 
I thought the alcohol would make me feel better. I thought it would create more of a fun time. I thought that vacation that I spent thousands of dollars on would result in a little more satisfaction. Take a closer look at Jesus. Whatever you thought he is, he's better. Whatever you think he requires, he's worth it. Whatever you think he's about, it's more incredible. And if you would understand Jesus for real, if you would really understand who Jesus is, then you must understand this hour that he talks about. You must understand his hour. You must understand the hour. Jesus keeps highlighting this hour of his life because if you don't understand this hour, if you do not comprehend this hour, you will remain lost in the brokenness of this world, seeking satisfaction from all the world has to offer, but winding up hollow and empty inside. We can't save ourselves. We need a savior. We can't rehab ourselves. We need to be remade. One thing I love about YouTube videos right now is it's turned all of us into phenomenal do-it-yourselfers. I've become confident because of YouTube that I can fix just about anything. I did. I, I put a new front suspension with my father-in-law's help. A new... <laughs> who happens to be extremely mechanical. <laughs> but I watched this YouTube video, and I was like, wow, we can do this. But if you watch a lot of YouTube videos out there on how to fix yourself, which they're out there too, they're just not titled that. There's a lot of self-improvement videos out there. No matter how many videos you watch, you can't fix yourself. We can't get to God on our own. God sent Jesus to get us. We're dead in our sin, we're broken. Jesus dies to bring us life. That's what the hour teaches us. Jesus dies to bring us life. It is through death that we find spiritual life. Through Christ's death is, is how people can find spiritual life. And we too find life in dying to self and following him. The hour is not a moment in time, but a moment filled with meaning. The hour, if you're making these observations, the hour is not a moment in time, but a moment filled with meaning. So Jesus isn't just talking about this 60 minutes right now. He's re this, this hour represents something. And what it represents is his death and his resurrection. This is what he's talking about. When he talks about his hour of being glorified, it's through his death and his resurrection. This is what's amazing, church. This is what you have to realize, that throughout church history, shockingly, there have been these interpretations of Christianity claiming genuine validity, which have tried to limit the significance of Jesus to his moral teaching. 
So there's people that will say, well, I'm not getting wrapped up in a cross. I'm not getting wrapped up in a God that would kill his son. I'm not getting wrapped up in all of that. And and the resurrection, I, I don't know about that. But I will agree with you that Jesus was an incredible teacher. Or... Some have tried to reduce the kingdom of God to moral principles, to ethical principles. If you do this, you will achieve morality. You'll take on a self-improvement method that cleans you up enough that you're acceptable to God. In other words, this is teaching that stops right at the hour. That renders Jesus important all the way up till chapter 12, the middle of it, and then the rest of it is useless. If you stop and only regard Jesus as a great teacher or as someone who is a great example of self sacrificing love, then you don't understand the hour. And Jesus, if he were to speak to you, would say, you need to rethink this. Because the hour is crucial to understanding who I am. The hour, we're told in verse 23, has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus, the word, has come into the world. The scripture tells us, John told us, that it was his food to do the will of God. He brings glory to the Father in his final supreme act of obedience to God. So in other words, Christ is glorified through his death and his resurrection. He is glorified through his being lifted up on the cross. He's like, as it says, a grain of wheat that must fall into the earth and die before it bears a harvest of fruit. Jesus' glory will not come about through religious enthusiasm like the Jews. Jesus' glory doesn't come about through intellectual curiosity like the Greeks. It is through his act of supreme self-denial that the glory of God will be revealed and the kingdom of God becomes available for the world that God loves. The death and resurrection are the hour, one inseparable event in which Jesus achieves his glory. So there should be emphasis in the church on this hour. The death of Jesus, the crucified Jesus as king, this is what's sad. I hope it I hope I oftentimes think of the people who wrote the letters in the Bible that I have had and, and the gospels that I have had the privilege to preach. I oftentimes think of John sitting in the audience and listening. Which if you get notification that John's gonna be here, please let me know. Because that's gonna make me really nervous. But I should always be nervous because God's always here and he's listening to the preaching and he has a look on his face. And I like to imagine the look on his face being, that's what I meant, Kenny. That's what I said. 
tell him more. Tell him what I said. What would be really scary is to see God sitting there next to all of you going, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. There's a lot of churches where if Jesus came and sat in the church, he would say, you better read that again. You better have another look. Where's the Bible in this place? How come you're preaching to people as if they could get to God on their own? That's why I came. How come you're preaching? How come the flavor of your preaching is giving people the sense that their good works are actually what get God to like them? How come the subtle flavor of your preaching is legalism even though you use the words of grace? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Another observation about the hour. It troubles Jesus greatly. I want to linger here because it'll make you, if, if you have a heart, you'll love Jesus more. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. The realization of his suffering breaks Jesus down. Troubled. His heart is troubled. Another way of interpreting that word would be his heart is shocked. His heart is agitated. His heart is revulsed at the thought of what he must endure. Do you remember, friends, the agony in the garden? In anguish, Jesus prayed. He fell down on his knees and he prayed. And he was in such anguish that the sweats, of, the sweats that dropped from his head were actually drops of blood. That's the kind of anguish he was in. And then he prayed. He prayed this prayer. Father, save me from this hour. Another way of saying it. Father, as I think about what's before me, as I think about this hour, is there any way that we can accomplish this thing with me bypassing the cross? Does God answer prayers? Does God answer your prayers? Do you think that God heard Jesus' prayer? What if? He'd have answered it the way that Jesus asked him. If God had saved Jesus, from that hour, the implications are unthinkable. 
unthinkable. If God had answered the prayer that Jesus, in the way that Jesus had requested it, to put it simply, if God spares Jesus, then we all die in eternity without hope. The whole purpose of God in salvation would be thwarted. The mission of Jesus would fail. The prince of this world would be left in victory, unjudged, free to destroy eternally. Sinners abandoned to face the consequences of their sin for all eternity. See, death for Jesus is not just a natural event. We like to even, we'll see that in, in, in literature as it talks about death being just the final uh, step in the, the, the life process. You're born, you live, you die. It's just this natural thing, dust to dust, earth to earth. Jesus doesn't feel that way about death. Jesus hates death. Why? Because we're creatures of God, made in his image, objects of his providential care, objects of his love, filled with value, made to live forever. You were made to live forever. Death is unnatural. It's a usurper. It has overtaken God's creation. Death is the wages of sin. Death proclaims that there is nothing in our lives which is fit to endure to eternity. In death is where God meets us as judge. And it is this thought that causes Jesus to recoil in horror. In his death, he must take the place of those he has come to bring life. He must die their death in order to free us from death forever. The cup of God's wrath, it's referred to in Scripture, that is a cup that Jesus must drink. He's got to face the reality of human finitude, the ending of his mission, the mockery of his enemies, in whose eyes he dies as a failure, the physical and mental sufferings of the cross. But that's not what scares him most. That's not what causes his soul to recoil. He must face the Father himself the one that he has been inseparably bound to for all eternity and face him not in his warm embrace of his everlasting love, but the terror of his wrath. Why did he do that for you and for me? This is the hour where Jesus becomes the object of divine rejection, the bearer of God's hate for the evil of humanity. Yeah. Jesus was troubled.
How incredible, church, is his love. How incredible is Jesus' love. A story to help you see his love. You need a break from theology for a moment, I can tell. Johnny's with me. I think I may have told you this story before, but it's worth repeating. It's a story of a little boy who wanted a model sailboat. So he began saving his money until he had enough to buy it. And he went to the toy shop, picked out his kit, made the little toy sailboat with great care, painted it, spent weeks perfecting it. And finally, when it was finished, he went down to the lake to sail it. And in sailing it, the wind picked up and took the little boat right out across the lake, out of his sight, out of his care, never to be found. Naturally, he was distressed and he began a frantic search. So he would regularly walk each day the, the, around the lake looking for his little boat. But he was unable to find it. About a month later, he found himself walking by a toy store. And to his amazement, he saw his little boat in the window with a hefty price tag attached to it. He went in and told the owner, Sir, that's my boat. I want to have my boat back. The owner said, Listen, I'm sorry. I paid good money for that boat. If you want it back, you got to pay for it. So the boy went home sad, and he was poor, but he took on jobs and earned enough money until he could go back and buy that boat. And as he walked out of the store, he said this, Now, you are twice mine. Once because I made you and once because I bought you. Jesus created us and he purchased us with his own blood on the cross. Now, because of his love, we can be twice his. That's the love of Jesus. I made the mistake of telling you that I was going to give you some observations about the hour and then telling you that I would tell you about the death of a Jesus achieving four incredible things. And then I even told you that I would make some application at the end. We're going to move to the application at the end. I trust that the observations of the hour have in your mind and perhaps the Spirit of God has spoken to you at how incredible the cross and the hour of Jesus' death and his resurrection are. I've said to you that the main point of this passage is that death is the way to spiritual life. I've told you also, and this is the application, we too find life in dying to self and following Jesus. From his cross, from his death, salvation seed falls to the ground and an incredible harvest of benefit to all of humanity springs forth. His death was the root of blessings and mercies 
towards millions and millions of people. But he says in here that this deep and powerful truth is followed by a very practical application in verse 25. If we should ask ourselves this this question, if Christ died to give me life, if I'm alive in Christ, what should I do? Whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Maybe this is the point at which God is speaking to some of us. That's strong language, guys. Whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever hates, hate, I don't like using the word hate. I try to reserve the word hate for very few things. Jesus says this, though. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. How much do you hate your life in this world? I fear for us, church. I fear for myself. There's a lot I love about the comforts of this life I live. But Jesus is using this language, and he's not, he's not going to modify the language for us. It says, hate. If you would be saved, you must be ready to give up life itself. Jesus said, whoever would follow me must deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. So death is the way to spiritual life. We find our greatest life, we find our best life in dying to self and following Jesus. Church, do you believe that? Where is Christ calling you right now, right here, to die to self? Where is there, is there any death occurring in your life at all? Can there be, as you look over your life, is there any indication of hatred? for life in this world. Anything. Look for some example. Look for some illustration in your life. Can you say, yes, I have said no to that because I've said yes to Jesus. If you can't think of any, as you survey your life, if you can't think of any indications of where you have set aside something, denied yourself something, even hated self in some way, then I could never, and Jesus, the scripture could never give you any assurance that you actually are in Christ. Because those that have been rescued by his grace take up their cross, deny self, and follow him. Not to get salvation, not to earn salvation, but as a response to the incredible grace he he has poured out on you, rescuing from darkness and bringing you into his marvelous light. There's things about this world that we love which must be buried. If you love your life so much that you can't deny yourself anything for the sake of your soul, you will find one day that you have lost everything. But the one who is willing to crucify everything, it doesn't mean that God will call you to crucify everything, but there's a willingness to crucify everything that would steal your love for Jesus will find in the end that you are no loser. These truths should sink deeply into our hearts. They are cause for great self-examination. So I'll end by asking us this question.
where, God, are you calling me to deny myself? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about some area of your life that has to change in order to follow Jesus? Can you actually say, Jesus, where you go, I'll follow? For some of us, we've said that. Where you go, Jesus, I follow. But if we actually took some readings on the compass of our lives, we would find, if we turned our GPS on and could find Jesus' location as compared to our own location, we would find that we're actually not near Jesus. Where you go, I'll follow. But Jesus seems to be over here, and I'm driving in the wrong direction. Where is Jesus calling us? And the beauty of following Jesus is it's always happening in our lives. He's always inviting us to follow him. And he's regularly in his love adjusting. He's course adjusting, rerouting. This is a great opportunity for God to do a reroute in your life. Sunday morning, God rerouting. Going the wrong direction, reroute. Jesus is over here. But the question becomes, are you willing to get going over there? Are you willing to ask God for the Spirit to fill you, to give you power so you can do this thing that I actually don't want to do? I don't want to turn the wheel in that direction. I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. There's such a thing as an easy Christianity, and we find it a lot of it in the world today. It's not very strong. It's not very real. It's when we serve Jesus in name and religious form, and it satisfies people. But to really know and love Jesus with a full heart of faith demands something from us. And it will undoubtedly be a life of sacrifice. But when the Father honors us on the last day before all the assembly of all angels and all humanity, we will find that the praise of Christ makes up for it all. The hour. It's good to think about.